Welcome to the Moving Beyond Your Tribe, where we talk about new ideas, new words, new approaches to step out of our comfort zones, to break free from our assumptions and create bridges to new opportunities. Hi, I'm your host, Torin, a multi-potentialite and political agnostic with a passion to bring all sides together through dynamic and thoughtful conversations. On this podcast, I'll bring on notable and diverse guests from all walks of life to give us tools to help us be better leaders and colleagues, create stronger business culture, boost our productivity and profits, create impact on our society with our message, and more importantly, help us to be a better mensch. Now let's get started. Welcome to Moving Beyond Your Tribe. I am excited to have my friend Dennis Larson come on. He's a nomad just like me, traveled around. He's Norwegian Dutch, as like I'm a Norwegian American, and he has studied Masters of Economics and an MBA with a focus on corporate communications at the Rasmus Rotterdam School of Management. And today we're going to talk about his expertise, which is reputation. And reputation is important for everyone. And what does it mean to have a good reputation, bad reputation? How do you enhance it? And just everything that's in between there. So welcome, Dennis. Yeah, thanks, Torin. Great to, great to be here. Thanks for having me. How did you get into from economics to communications to reputation, how did that journey happen? Yeah, good, good question. Well, uh, I guess I was lucky enough towards the end of my um, degree in economics to almost kind of fall into, uh, into corporate communication, reputation management. Serendipitously, as you could say, I started working as an assistant really for a professor. And this was a guy called uh, Case Van Riel, renowned professor in the space of, of corporate communication back in the day. And he founded, together with Charles Farnborn, the Reputation Institute. And I just sort of had a side job as I was studying economics, got to know Case, and he took me under his uh, arm or wing, so to say. And yeah, the rest is history. I mean, it was great back in those early days, being sort of a fly on the wall and being able to go into organizations with him right at the senior level from the beginning. And I got a taste of of consulting. I always thought I would become a consultant and had my eyes set on, you know, the McKinsey's or the Accenture's, had some early conversations with them. I liked seeing the world through spreadsheets and, and data. But then I got into this world of reputation management consulting and never let it go. Just kept kept doing that for 20 years. Still see a little bit of the world through spreadsheets, but it's it's nice to be able to mix the the science and the data with almost a bit of the art of consulting. Uh, and the creativity involved there as well. So what is it about reputation that's interesting? Because it's not tangible like the spreadsheet, right? But at the same time, we know that if you have a good reputation, you can make a profit and that you are more profitable, right? So mm. how do you measure that or how do you manage that? Or It's a good <laughs> point because if you're having conversations with boards and with C-level executives, you need something tangible, and it has to make sense to them. And from the beginning, I've always approached reputation management from the premise that you can put your finger on it. The complexity is how do you measure it and how do you then quantify it in, in dollar or pound or euro terms? So it's possible to do both for individual companies and for groups of companies. Put very simply, if you look at the sort of cluster of companies level, there are all sorts of indices and rankings and ratings uh, connected to aspects of reputation. So that's one area you could look at. 
and there's value there. I mean, you, you have um, the accounting profession looking at quantifying reputation. You have insurers looking at quantifying reputation from a reputation risk insurance perspective. And there are various indicators there. I mean, some, some indicators say that corporate reputations account for about uh, 35% of, of the, the total capitalization of, of the world's top 15 um, market indices, which equates to about $17 trillion in shareholder value. So that's an interesting way to, to look at it. Can yeah. you give me that in a little bit simpler terms? So 35%. Yeah, so 35% of, of listed companies' total market value, market capitalization, okay. can be, according to some scholars, ascribed to, to reputation. The complexity uh-huh. is, you know, you have the concept in economics of, of goodwill and how do you separate the reputation component of goodwill. And, and this is an ongoing scientific debate. And some estimates, including the World Economic Forum, put the figure much higher and say, you know, 60% of, of, an organiz- of a listed company's value is attributable to reputation. And it makes intuitive sense as well. If you look at share prices, a lot of the valuation share prices is connected to the promise of future returns. And so reputation is an indicator of not just how well you're doing now, but how well people think you're going to do as a company in the future. And that has financial value to it. Um, so even accounting firms now account for reputation? Did they used to do that or is that just a recent There's thing? quite a lot of interest from all sorts of uh, specialist financial service providers and consultants to quantify reputation in, in different ways. So auditors, KPMG, EY has a reputation risk practice. This has become an area of focus that is quantifiable for, for many professional service organizations. While I appreciate the financial valuation of reputation to, to give it some heft in the discussion with senior leaders, I always ring a note of caution around the science that is involved. And I rather look at individual firms and look at how reputation makes business sense for them also financially, but also connected to the way reputation actually informs individual stakeholder decision-making. So if you think about it, the thoughts you have about a company helps inform whether you buy their products. You can like a company, you can think it's doing good in the world, and that might make you feel better when you buy their products, put simply. And the same effect goes for other stakeholders. You know, when you choose to apply for a job at an organization, or even now increasingly shareholders are looking into reputation of the organizations they're about to, to invest in. Large institutional investors, even you know, buy-side, sell-side analysts are looking at these, what you might call intangible assets or soft metrics of organizations as a way of valuing the future financial performance that the organization might have in the future. So stakeholder decisions are clearly directly connected to organizations' reputation. And, and that's why I say to, leading, to leaders in organizations, let's look at what your reputation is now across these different stakeholder groups and even within them, within specialist audiences, and look at your reputation for the specific things that these individual stakeholder groups care about. You know, it, it's pointless saying my reputation is 76% or 5.2, whatever metric you use, and I want it to be 5 tomorrow or, tomorrow, or you know, next year I want it to be 80 you know, you have to think about reputation for what, among which audience, compared to which 
best practice or benchmark that you're interested in. Those three things are essential. And, you know, there's, there's a really good definition of reputation out there in academia that says you have multiple reputations. You have uh, specific issue-based reputations and you have specific stakeholder-related reputations. And you can look at those individually and you can put them together. So I think it's very important for companies to think about and to both quantify and qualify what are the, the issues or the topics or the themes that their stakeholders care about. On those issues and topics, how are they performing? And what do the stakeholders expect of them in addressing those particular topics? And that's the crux of, of reputation research. That's both a mix of the quantifiable and the qualitative insights you need in order to then decide, okay, can I improve my reputation within the investor audience by enhancing the way I communicate or the way my investor relations department works? Or do I need to change something material about the way I run the business because there's a big reputation problem I have within the specific analyst audiences in the financial community, for instance? What is the lowest hanging fruit that you've seen people can do immediately to change their reputation? Yeah, is and again, uh, they're not. <laughs> I, yeah, it's a. Uh, I'd, I'd love for there to be a one size fits all silver bullet type <laughs> answer to that question, and there is. I mean, I think the 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 simplest first thing to do, as the saying goes, knowledge is power and information trumps all. Understand first where you stand, but don't fall into the trap of managing the metric. You know, if you're looking to incentivize leaders around reputation targets. That's a, that's a difficult place to start. Start by understanding where you stand and very quickly from that positioning, have a bold vision of where you want to go. And, and that's the same for business strategy and the same goes for reputation thinking. Uh, dare to think long-term, dare to think multi-stakeholder and have a sense of where the topics and issues are trending that you with your specific organizational the way you operate or the products and services you have or the topics you get involved in, how you can make a difference on those things that matter to your stakeholders. And decide. You can't have a reputation for everything among everyone that's always going to be stellar. You have to decide which topics to really push the needle on because you want to hit that particular target audience and inform their decision-making to the best benefit of your, your company's future success. How much is the change in communication, or that you actually have to change structure and operations of the company? What has your experience been? Has it been like 50% of it is just a communications issue, or is it, is it more than that? I think we've seen over the past maybe five years or so a bit of a, a shift in balance towards a recognition by organizations that they can't fix reputation problems through through communication alone. A lot can be done through communication, and it's still an essential part of, uh, of reputation work. But uh, we're seeing a lot more organizations taking it so seriously and recognizing, and they're taking it seriously because they're recognizing there's business value in doing so, recognizing the value of their reputation and what an important asset it is, not only to build to protect. So taking better business decisions informed by reputation intelligence and reputation thinking, meaning thinking more long-term, thinking multi-stakeholder and not just short-term earnings gains. So 
I think the balance is shifting a little bit towards within businesses, a recognition of the importance of taking right business decisions and taking business decisions informed by reputation insights, as well as the recognition that sometimes you need to change something in the business and you can't communicate your way out of uh, out of all problems. And we've seen lots of great examples of companies, even that have um, decided not to open a factory in a certain location or even killed certain product lines because they were associated with such detrimental reputation risk for, for their organizations, even though they were profitable product lines. It's interesting you say that because I just read the book Shoe Dog by Phil Knight. From, he was the founder of uh, Nike, and he yeah. was talking about how people were having this interpretation of they were being so poorly run or they were being in these factories in India and so forth. And what they did was they were probably better than all companies, but the impression was they were the ones that needed to take a leadership and that's what they did. And in the last 10 years or so, they've really worked themselves to be the best and actually change the industry, which then of course helps them with their reputation. So you're Absolutely. Seeing- and I think especially for such highly visible organizations, especially consumer-facing organizations, you have a greater responsibility to actually change the industry, both in the vertical supply chain, and you have a responsibility for good practices, both socially and environmentally, of the suppliers uh, that provide your products, as well as horizontally leading the way in your industry to enhance the standards of of the wider industry. And Nike is a great example, and, you know, others spring to mind uh, you know, for instance, around uh, the whole issue connected to responsible consumption from an alcohol standpoint, companies like Heineken that really lead the way in informing the industry standards of, of the rest of the alcohol industry, pushing the boundaries of actually even committing, I think it's 15% or maybe it's more of their product brand marketing spend has to be responsible drinking related messaging. So you, you see Heineken ads where they have people saying no to no to Heineken and no to alcohol and and uh, you know it benefits their zero point zero percent brands as well, but those kinds of examples, especially of uh, industry leading firms that really take their responsibility seriously, make sure their suppliers not only adhere to current legal requirements and the current accepted practices when it comes to social issues and environmental standards but go beyond that and push the boundaries of what's acceptable because they recognize if they don't, they can fall down being so visible uh, from a reputation perspective. So let me ask you this. In in the last couple of years, you really have an experience of cancel culture Mm -hmm. where you can suddenly be piled up on and be almost canceled out for something. How do you rebuild yourself from that? Or have you seen that in your, uh, with your clients and stuff or worked with people on that? It's definitely a problem of this highly charged and highly visible world. And I think there's a big problem uh, connected to the way social media works. This is definitely a problem for highly visible individuals who dare to have discussions on sensitive topics. You can almost no longer have a very visible public debate on a sensitive topic without there being a major risk, someone will take something you've said out of context and you suddenly have a whole Twitter storm or whatever social media platform storm. It's, it's a dangerous place to be today. And, and, and it's, it's scary, really. And, and, and I hope we regain proper dialogue between individuals and organizations 
from a, a solid ground and, the, and even, even, even though we don't agree, to still be able to have a platform for having these conversations. And I think the, the fear many business leaders might have is the fear of things getting taken out of context and exploding on them and, and therefore not anymore being willing to take a risk on very important societal issues that need addressing. Do you think today that because of the cancel culture, but at the same time, people looking for leaders within the corporations, do you feel like the trend, even though you have cancel culture, people are more taking stands, political stands or taking stands for their company? Or how do you see that? Because you, your company works for like the Fortune 500s of, in the world. So you're kind of looking at the top leadership in all these major corporations. What are yeah. you seeing? I think there's a, there's definitely an opportunity for leaders of major companies, and some are taking that opportunity well, to step up and use the heft of their organizations to make real lasting change. So I think there's a gap that's being left by uh, politics in many parts of the world, by governments, and there's an opportunity for companies to play a role. The difficulty is in finding a way of playing a genuine role and take the current COVID crisis, a lot of the um, initiatives that companies have taken have been interpreted as being self-serving, uh, disingenuous. Uh, and, really? and if uh, Yes. And, and, but, if, but the companies that actually think things through and take an active role in really making a difference and then reaping the reputation reward, as opposed to being seen to be taking the reputation reward and not actually making a difference, so making a genuine difference. And the way to get that message across is through interpersonal communication, not through just brand building, but having leaders step up and take an active stance and be part of the dialogue. And I mean, we talked about Heineken. Again, there is a company where uh, their new CEO, a young guy, Dolph, he came in and right away saw this COVID thing emerging, took an active role in addressing it, made sure employees were safe, and even change some of their production lines to invest in producing disinfectant right away. And only afterwards, you see some of the communication emerging about the good they're doing. They just did the good first. You know, let's take care of our employees, take care of our communities, make sure people are safe, do what we can to make a difference, invest uh, locally through the operating companies on the ground to actually address the, uh, whatever they could through the heft of their organization. And I think that shows true leadership. And that's that genuine. Leadership. Yeah, I totally agree with you. And I think that's where, what I like on your website, you have like these six points of, um, of reputation. And one that I really appreciated and it kind of fits in now is this whole culture washing. Because what Heineken did was they showed throughout, they just did it, right? They didn't do that to make themselves look good. But if you can tell me a little bit about culture washing, because I think that's, it's so easy for us communicators to put lipstick on the pig, but yeah. it doesn't work. <laughs> yeah, no, that's and I, and I think we have a real responsibility as communicators. Of course, we'll we'll pick out the cherries, make them shine, and and make them look better. But the core of the cherry has to not be a pit; it has to be gold, right? And you have to find that gold to be able to communicate about it. So the culture washing concept came up in a, a study we did where we looked at the future of culture, looked at the interplay between culture and reputation. And we basically went out and talked to senior global leaders, heads of HR, heads of corporate communication, to just learn from them what they saw as the current challenges and the opportunities surrounding culture. And one of the things we found was 
well, we found a number of interesting things, but one thing that came out was this almost a, a, a sort of dichotomy between individuals that thought, well, culture is something you can manage. You can build culture, you can have strong leadership and culture will follow. You can have a culture roadmap and have targets and so on. But many more actually thought, well, we know management wants to focus on culture and wants us to have a certain culture, but it's, it's not manageable. You can't, as soon as you call it culture and have, call it a culture initiative internally in organizations, these initiatives often fail. People wow. look the other way and they're, they're, they're not seen as exciting to get behind. So, so it's a difficult thing to manage once, once you call it culture. And there, there's responsibility for communicators uh, to look for ways underneath the hood, look for the, the bits of the engine that need fixing that clearly are culture related, but make them relevant in the language of the business. I mean, when we work with large technical organizations with a high a degree of engineers and technicians in the organization, you can't really talk about culture in the same way as you would for a, a large consumer goods company or even a creative company where it's much easier understood, and especially a service-oriented company versus a hard industrial products company. Uh, but the premise is still the same. You still have a culture. You still have people thinking in a certain way. But the other really great finding I thought that came out was this idea of a, of a, of a culture mosaic. We had people saying, you know, it's not, you can't really work a monolithic culture and say, this is going to be our culture. Let's have, throw some values up on the wall. This is how we want everyone to behave. And let's put some campaigns around that and, you know, ho hope for the best. Really the understanding and the thinking that actually we have a mosaic of different subcultures. They can be connected to geographic differences if you're a multinational operating globally, but they can also be connected to simple things like, oh, you know, our IT department has a certain different culture than, say, our procurement department or this business unit is very different than this. Or think of a large company acquiring another, another firm with very different cultures where it's important to allow the brand you're acquiring to ha still have its own culture and thrive in the way it did, especially in creative organizations. So this idea of a culture mosaic really resonated well and came out of those conversations as as a way to think about culture. You can still nudge and inform certain behaviors and, and, and build culture. But I think that recognition that there's a massive bottom-up process and that there are different subcultures you want to allow to thrive within that, still within some kind of overall concept. So how about then with the mission and vision? Because you're just saying you don't want to just throw the vision up on the wall. And then you see the mosaics. How do you reconcile this sense of what you were just talking about, this leadership mm. of we want to have this as our vision and mission. And this is kind of where the founding, the brand purpose came from, right? Mm. And then how do you reconcile that with the uh, mosaic and how do you strengthen the culture? It's great that you bring that up because it's, it's actually really important that there's a, a connection. You can call it congruence between on the one hand, if you imagine a triangle, at the top, you might have the vision of leadership or, or the, you know, now we all talk about purpose as well. Larry Fink, CEO of Black Opera, famously put purpose really front and center of the discussion also in the, fi the financial community as a value driver. You know, companies that are more purposeful and are really impacting on the things societies care about will fare better financially over longer term, something we've been banging the drum on for for years, and it's great to see the recognition. So the vision, the purpose at the top is very important. If you then look at the two other bits of the triangle, you might have on the one side culture, 
or your, your corporate characteristic from an identity perspective. Who are you? What's the DNA of the business? And the third leg is reputation or, or image. And this, this call it the VCI triangle comes from a professor in, in Copenhagen. Called, uh, her name is Michael Schultz. And she came up with this many years ago through academic research, and it's still valid. I'd, I'd say it's even more valid today that each of the legs of the triangle have to have to stand up for the whole machine to work. So you might have so an amazing vision, vision. vision up on top. Mission yeah, vision. vision on the top, and then one bottom you have culture. The other bottom you might have reputation, or uh, Mike can call it call it image. So so you have the the vision where the company is going on the top, then. On the inside, your culture, and then on the outside, your reputation. These three things have to hang nicely together. So if you imagine you might have a new CEO come in and have an amazing vision of where the organization is going, want to push it very hard in a certain direction. If that bears no resemblance to the internal culture or the ways of thinking of the organization as it is, there's a gap there. And you can stretch, you can have that gap, but it has to come together at a certain point. In some respects, maybe an example springs to mind here, Paul Pullman at Unilever, he had a very bold vision for the future of Unilever. For many years, financial analysts had been calling on the company to at least split in half, if not in three pieces, the food products on one side and the home and personal care on the other. And, and that's when they invented the new corporate brand, better glue across the divisions and tried to explain to analysts that actually there is congruence across the business, there's value in integrating the two. Paul Pullman came in and said, well, let's go further than that. Now that we've built the corporate brand and the corporate reputation, we've cut out some of the smaller brands and you know, focus on blockbuster leading brands, less product brands to manage and really infuse each of the product brands with more of the corporate value. The next step now is to be clear on where we're going as a company and most importantly, how we can make a stronger positive difference or less of a negative difference, uh, actually, uh, on on environment. And he was so bold that analysts said, well, oh, are you turning the company into an NGO? Are you still going to make money? He even said, oh, maybe we'll stop having quarterly earnings reports. And you know, if you're going to invest in Unilever, you can only invest for the long run. Don't expect short-term returns. This was groundbreaking stuff. So groundbreaking that the his vision for the company didn't connect straight away with where the company was, with the exact of the culture of the organization. And so a lot of internal work had to be put into place to change the way of thinking of the company, change the culture, make people much more, not only aware, but make them buy into his vision of having their environmental impacts. And, it, and it's worked. And, and it has worked? Yeah. How long did it take him to do that? Oh, it took a lot longer than he would have liked, but it did work. I mean, it, it took wow. longer to get it off the ground and to get um, especially employees to buy into the um, uh, sustainable living plan, which um, uh, they went through a large set of internal programs, capability building programs, among others, re-incentivizing individuals. And that's that's paid off and, and, and it's paid off externally as well in terms of shareholder value. Share price has done well in that in during his tenure. He's turned the business, I wouldn't say around, it wasn't doing badly, but he's he really has made a very positive impact. And the reputation data shows indeed the the strong effects among their stakeholders of that. But but you have to take these bold risks sometimes. Uh, take another senior leader when he was CEO of, of the Walt Disney Company, Bob Iger, who's now chairman, he said. You cannot take risk. You know, the riskiest thing 
that we do is just maintaining the, stat- the status quo, staying as we are. He was a big risk taker with all his big, bold acquisitions of, say, Marvel Comics and others. And some of them were deemed to be so bold for others in the Disney company because they thought uh, that it, it would erode from the Disney values and the Disney reputation to suddenly have other firms being acquired uh, part of the Disney family that perhaps don't match the same values and the same reputation strengths that Disney had. But he took those risks. He allowed those sub-brands to thrive and their own cultures to thrive the way they worked. I mean, a company like Pixar operated completely differently through the creative process than a company like, uh, uh, like the Walt Disney Company. And that acquisition worked really well for them just by allowing that specific piece of the culture mosaic to, to thrive and those reputational strengths of Pixar to stay at Pixar's reputational strengths while giving benefits to the overall company. So let me ask you this then, because you did a great study last year on reputation risk. And if I recall correctly, it was really about the most important risk that you have or the one that you really need to work on is your internal culture and internal communications. Is that still true or do you? uh... I think it's become even more true now during the last six months. How Uh, so? Given COVID and given the uncertainties that workforces have have faced, I think it's become even more important for companies from a reputation perspective, also from a survival perspective, frankly, to focus on their employees' safety, focus on their employees' health. By health, I mean not just physical health, but mental health, which luckily has become less of a taboo subject in, in the popular domain to talk about. And I think companies have a major, major role to play to ensure that the mental health of their employees especially given the situation many of them in. As human beings, we're, we're, we don't really like uncertainty. We don't like not knowing, A, if we're going to get a paycheck, B, if we're going to die on the way to the office. You know? And these are real intrinsic needs that we have as human beings to, to not live in a space of, of such dire uncertainty. I think companies that have put their employees first, uh, then customers and, and, and communities, they do better in the long run reputationally Financially, they, they survive. Of course, there are many major sectors that are still feeling pain and business models have become uh, much more uh, strained and financial security is out the window in many places. So it's a difficult situation for many companies to be in. But those companies that are, to use another buzzword, you know, agile and they're able to flexibly adapt uh, and have resilient cultures are those where you tend to see leadership caring first and foremost about employees and making sure that they're okay. I mean, since we talked about Heineken, again, Dolph was very clear that um, and made a public statement saying no, no layoffs, no restructurings until the end of 2020 at least. So you're secure if you work for Heineken. And we've seen many businesses do this, take care of their employees first. And it's complex because you have all these assets sitting around in terms of office space, right? And a lot of managers aren't used to managing people over digital means. And so there's a, there's, a real, there's a real pressure to see how can we get workforces back in the office. But I think those companies that are leaving it more to individuals, and then if they do choose to come back, sort of the, the, the office workers, make it feel safe for them, make it actually safe for them so they feel safe, take care of them and allow them to decide responsibly what the best way is of, of coming back to work, if indeed that is in the best interest of both employee and, and, and the organization. 
So I think we'll see a lot of interesting models emerge. And it's been a steep learning curve for managers, steep learning curve for, for anyone working in, in, uh, in any organization, really. How, how do we keep cultures alive and how do we keep social aspects of our team dynamic alive as opposed to just having a transactional uh, relationship with, with the company you work for? How do you see this going? Like now with COVID, we're kind of going to close, but your reflection on, on COVID and how do we deal with that in reputation, in the culture? What have you seen being having worked with all these various companies? Do you see so many different approaches and so many different things? Some things stand out in terms of, um, and I wouldn't dare call them best practice because we're still in the middle. We're almost still, we're still in the middle of it. And if you take classic crisis management, even from a communication, a crisis communication perspective, we're still in this kind of long drawn out crisis and we don't know when it's going to end. You've probably heard the term, you know, VUCA, VUCA world. It's a volatile, uncertain, challenging and ambiguous world, which I think was a term first used in Operation Desert Storm or something. But we've, we've borrowed it in communication speak. And this is the, this is the new norm. We, we are in a world that is going to continue to be uncertain. We don't know where the next big uh, issue or crisis is going to come from. No one has that crystal ball. All we do know is we have to be increasingly flexible, agile, and resilient. So how do you build a company that is flexible, agile, and resilient while staying true to operating models that work for everyone involved? I think we're probably going to see some organizations thrive really well on a much, much more fluid approach. Hmm. Uh, by that, I mean less fixed assets, less fixed employees. And a lot of new employees will appreciate this. There are, of course, issues in terms of financial security and, and unions and all sorts. I, I recognize that. But if you take the, the findings from what Generation Z and millennials and the, the notion are saying in all, in all sorts of studies, you know, Chloe Comby and her book, there's, there's a lot of good insights there. And I think if you take the idea that there's an interest in people owning their own brand, having their own portfolio career, you're a case in point, right? Having pieces of your time going to things you care about. And, you know, I might one day a week work for Heineken, another day not for a competitor perhaps, but for a consulting firm. And then I might be a yoga teacher on day four. I don't know. But I think we'll see much more of that flexibility where people own their own time and they own how they use that in various portfolio career styles. And then it's beholden on organizations to be much more open in allowing allowing those flexible work situations to work and to still ensure there's enough security for all involved. Oh, that's a really fascinating thing. Wow. You might be a tennis teacher then since you do tennis. <laughs> well, I have a long way to go. I only picked it up again after a 10-year hiatus. But you do marathons, ago. right? Have you yeah, read? that's that's just something to keep me um, keep me sane. Um, it's a great way to think. Plus, if you have a marathon, I have at least one a year. You sometimes do? two. Yeah, but just, it's just nice to have one on the horizon because there's just a kick in the backside to get out, and to, you know you have to be able to run this thing uh, once a year. So it's just a way to 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 get out of the out of the office. That's impressive. So as a as a close, um, I always like to ask people, uh, what is a hack? Like something that you found, like either an app or a resource or something that makes your life easier? Oh, that's a good question. There's so many neat little tools out there. 
lately I've found and I found us making quite a few sort of more visual instead of long drawn out reports in, in word, many more kind of visual productions. And we use infographics experts to get involved, but sometimes you just have to throw something together yourself pretty quickly. What uh, do you and do? <laughs> yeah. And then, you know, it's uh, little, little, little tips where you're, you're not using stock photography that you have to pay for, or even icons where, you know, there's a huge database of free icons called the noun project. Noun? Yeah, like N-O-U-N project. Great repository of neat little icons. And they're kind of quirky and different than your, your standard icons. So you can just type in any word and a whole bunch of crazy icons pop up. That's what springs to mind. But also, I mean, if we're, if we're on that subject, things like a slide model, slidemodel.com is a really cool resource for very different looking graphics and imagery that you can use in PowerPoints. Oh, those are just simple little tools. I've been That's using. great. Noun project and slide module.com. We'll put them in the show notes. It's always nice to have some new resources. I've never heard of them. So that's really great. <laughs> well, I just want to thank you so much. This is a very interesting discussion. And I think this is not just for big corporations, but for small corporations. And I guess one thing uh, we've talked a lot about big corporations, but do you have any like quick tips as a last question for small businesses? I think a lot of the a lot of the premises are the same, and I actually like working with startups. I've been doing quite a lot recently with uh, some tech startups that have a really great idea and are either pre-seed funding or or a little bit further. And there you have really small organizations with just three or four really gung ho individuals, and there's just so much energy there. And I think the great thing is for small organizations you can call the shots, right? You have to be a marketeer and a, and a communicator and the CEO, sometimes all in one, or even kind of mid-sized. You have more flexibility. You can be more agile. But when it comes to reputation, you might not be able to invest in a large, deep study to understand where you stand. You can't invest in huge campaigns or big uh, stakeholder events. Uh, but the principles of thinking long-term Thinking multiple stakeholder, not just going, I want a reputation for X and that's it. Think for X among Y, Y being which audience, and, and think about multiple Xs. What are the specific issues or topics that you're solving for? What is your company purpose? What are you intending to do? And by that, I mean, not just sell my products and services to customers or consumers, but what do they get out of it? And once you're clear on those topics, you can then involve yourself in discussions and debates. And you know, it doesn't have to cost a lot of money. It just costs time to find the kinds of connections and discussions and debates that you can insert yourself into, have an opinion on, just get it out there and build connections with like-minded individuals, with credible third-party organizations to further the dialogue on those topics that your organization has some tangible connection to in terms of what you're trying to do as a company. So just thinking multi-stakeholder, thinking multi-issue and thinking longer term on um, how you can make a difference and then communicating that internally and externally. Those are easy tips and it's not complicated. It's just about sometimes lifting the head from the business plan, lifting the head from the current operating model and thinking a little bit beyond that. Um, as I say, multi-stakeholder, multi-issue and finding those little tangible ways you can make a difference without having huge budgets. Uh, and, and it works. It really does work. Oh, that's great. 
Well, Dennis, thank you so much for your time. I really, really appreciate it. And um, we'll have um, more of the info on the show notes. So thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. Really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and you know at least one or two friends that would get a lot of value from this, send this episode. Or text a couple of your friends right now to WhatsApp group, post it on your Instagram stories, Facebook, or Twitter, and don't forget to tag me at Torin B. Share with anyone you think that needs to hear this message. And if you're new, please pop on over to your favorite podcast app and subscribe. Leave us a review. We'd love to hear from you. And how can we prove and make this better? Or how did this help you? And don't forget to join us next week for another episode of Moving Beyond Acronyms. 